Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Y'all sound good for 8 o'clock. That's what I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with us, of course, it'll be on the screen. But uh, if you want to join me in 2 Kings chapter 3, I want to take a few moments today to, to tell you a story. Can we do that? I just want to kind of walk you through a story and it'd be a little bit maybe different than, than, than maybe my normal style. But just uh, this week, this story kind of came across my mind. And in reading this story, I think there's seven keys that I think we can learn today that we can take from this. Several of them, Miss Jean already just hit. So, uh, you know, she's, she's already kind of got ahead of me a little bit, but that's good. That's the way the Lord works. So, uh, but we're going to get into this and, uh, I think it's going to be timely. I'm not going to try to, uh, jump into what pastor's doing because he is doing such a masterful job walking through the seasons. I can't wait till next week. I'm probably like some of you. I hate that, uh, you know, I understand. I hate he couldn't be here today so we could continue that. But hopefully this will be a good, um, sort of sidebar, if I could call it that, or maybe a good addendum to what he's doing. And some of this will maybe help you where you are in your life. Uh, in 2 Kings, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible because I just love all of the stories in the Old Testament, specifically when you get into First and 2 Kings and you start reading about the prophet Elijah. I just love reading about the prophet Elijah and all the incredible things that the Lord used him to do, so many great stories. And then he, he, had a, he found a protege, the Lord led him to a protege named Elisha, and, and Elisha followed him and he, he forsook his entire life, forsook everything that he had everywhere he was at. And he followed after Elijah because he wanted God's will for his life. And God rewarded him. He spent a season of serving where Elijah was doing all these great things and Elisha had to just sort of sit back and serve and be in the background. But when Elisha's time came, he was in the right place at the right moment and he was given a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah's life. And that's powerful to me. That's not what I'm preaching today. I'm just giving you a little sidebar, okay? That's so powerful. And so as we get into 2 Kings, Elisha is sort of taken over. In this particular story, it's sort of wedged in between two of the cool Elisha stories. And I think this story, maybe just within my own self growing up in the church, I mean, I've heard it mentioned a few times, but this is often an overlooked story, I would say. It's not as cool as the chapter before where you read about the little kids who made fun of him and the bear came out and ate him. We love to talk about that, especially preachers. So, you know... Y'all don't be hating on me. A bear will come out after you or something. You know, that's we like to preach that type of sermon. And then coming after this is where Elisha meets widow and, and supernaturally provides for her. Those are the stories we hear about, but wedged in between is this neat story in 2 Kings 3. So I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get into it. Are you ready? Verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who reigned and reigned 12 years. And he, he being Jehoram, did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. So right away, a little bit of interesting backstory. Can you can I pause for a moment and make sure you understand? We have a new king in Israel. His name is Jehoram. He's the son of Ahab. You remember Ahab was the king in so many of those cool Elijah stories I was just talking about. He was evil, and he was married to a woman named Jezebel, who we know was evil, so evil that even the name today, you don't see a lot of parents naming their kids Jezebel today, right? 
It's just, it, it's sort of like there's some other names I could mention. It just already has a negative connotation. We're not even going to speak that over our kids, right? So we know that this was a man who had been risen in a home that did not know the Lord God of Israel, that served evil gods, who served Baal. But I think it's important for us to understand two interesting things that I thought they put here. First of all, it does say he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not good. He was a sinful man. Now, it almost is like either he or whoever wrote this in some way, shape, or form was trying to justify it a little. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't do as evil as some others. This is a little side note. Can I give you one? How many times, we were kind of even talking about this before the service, how many times do we try to justify our sins by comparing it to, well, it's not at least that bad? We sometimes look at our lives, well, I'm messed up, but at least I'm not that messed up. I was talking about it with my students at school this week. It sort of relates to a text we were reading. I think a lot of times what you'll see in life, this is a natural tendency and it creeps into spirituality. I think there's a lot of times when we get so insecure about our own faults that in order to try to deflect attention, we want to point out all the faults of someone else. Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to be too popular, but that's the way it is. You know, if I'm worried about the way I look, then I may just point out the flaws of someone else so maybe everybody will look that way and not look at me, Right? How many times in spirituality, well, you know, I'm not doing all I can for the Lord, but at least I'm not like that person. They haven't been in church in six months. And we try to deflect attention, but we forget we serve the God who does what? He knows all. So it does no good for us to say that, well, at least it wasn't that bad. The, the, the truth of the matter is Jehoram still did evil in the sight of the Lord. He still served false gods, but here's the cool thing. Spoiler alert, we're going to get to it. God's going to do a miracle for him in this chapter. And because of that, I want to stop right here at this moment and give you the first point I want you to get today of the seven keys I think we can pull from this story. I want you to understand that we serve a God who is always ready to help you. We serve a God that is always ready to help us, even if we're in trouble by our own fault. Even when we get ourselves in the trouble, even when our sinful flesh causes us to make unwise decisions and we get in a situation that we cause, even if we have to fight some consequences in those calls, we still have a God who loves us and is gracious and is ready to help us. Amen? We as Christians need to know that we have a God who is always watching over us. Scripture teaches us from front to, to, to the back that God designed us, that, that our steps are ordered by him, that he's watching out for us. So even when we wander astray and end up in a situation that God didn't intend us to because we became impatient or because we failed to listen to his voice or we failed to even seek his will and decided to follow our own fleshly instincts, guess what? All that we have to do to get back to where we need to be is to humble ourselves and call upon the name of the Lord and he will be there ready to help us. Amen? We should be assured that God is for us. God is for you. One of the greatest things, the greatest grasps we can make in the faith to help us grow from, from being a, a new Christian to being a place where we can live victorious and live as a conqueror is understanding the fact that God is for you always. What does the Bible say in Romans 8? If God is for us, then who can what? Who can be against you? God is for you, and he wants what's best for you. But yes, in this life, we're all going to find ourselves in times of trouble. 
We're all going to be like Jehoram and find ourselves in times of trouble. Sometimes like Jehoram, we get there because of our own folly. Jehoram messed up because his, his fathers, his predecessors, while he wasn't on the throne, we know all the different times that the prophet Elijah went to Ahab and said, listen, you need to seek God. You need to turn your heart. And Ahab was stubborn and didn't do that. How many times Jezebel, she tried to kill all the prophets of God. He knew this and he saw the judgment of the Lord that fell on both Ahab and Jezebel all this time, but he still refused to seek the truth. He found himself in trouble. Sometimes when we find ourselves in trouble, we need to really look and, and search and reflect and determine, maybe I'm going through what I'm going through because I've done something that's messed up. Now, does that mean we need to beat ourselves up for it and live in shame? No, we understand, we reflect, and we see, God, I have messed up. I have allowed myself to get in this situation, but God, I need your help. You know, there's story after story in the Bible. Can I give you a quick summation of the story of Samson? Samson found himself in trouble in the Bible. You know why? Because he messed up. Samson was in covenant, man. He had a special bond with God. God had given him a special strength, a supernatural strength that nobody else had. All he had to do was follow this vow that had been made to the Lord. Don't cut your hair. Don't drink anything or eat anything from the vine. Don't touch anything that's unclean. And guess what? I'm going to be with you. And man, Samson, so many great stories. He killed a thousand Philistines at one time with a, with a jawbone. So many feats of strength, yet what did Samson do? By his own folly, he messed up. He started messing around with the enemy. He saw the woman named Delilah who was a part of the Philistines, and his physical attraction of her could not overcome the vow he knew that he had. He was unwilling to sacrifice his fleshly desire and his lust in order to be the man of God he was supposed to be. So what happened? He lost his strength. She cut his hair. He ends up in bondage from these people that he was really called to defeat. But the beauty of the story of Samson is so great. Did he die defeated? No. Did he, did he die in trouble? Did God completely forsake him? No. What Samson did was he called on the name of the Lord. Yeah, it took him getting in jail. Yeah, it took him losing his eyesight, his eyes being plucked out. It, it, it took him being extremely humbled. But guess what happened to Samson? Samson, in that moment of trouble, realized his folly, and what did he do? He called on the name of the Lord, and what happened? The Lord gave him strength, and in his last moment, he pushed the pillars of the temple that had all of those Philistines in it and killed more that day than he had his entire life. I'm here to tell you, you may feel like the enemy has plucked out your eyes. You may feel like that you've been completely humbled and you've lost it all. But I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but hear the word of the Lord. All you have to do is lift up your eyes one more time and cry out to God, and he's ready to be there on your behalf. Amen? Sometimes we end up in trouble just because we don't understand. Not that we are intending to do bad things, but, you know, sometimes we're young and we're ignorant. I know we don't like to admit that. Sometimes we just don't know. We think things are supposed to go a certain way and they end up going a different way. But we have to hold on to Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Amen? Sometimes you think you're in trouble just because things haven't gone the way you thought they should. I'm here to tell you, if you will trust and keep following God, they're going to work out for you. Sometimes we go through trouble because it's a testing Period. This is similar to what we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? Sometimes it's just winter. 
And sometimes we have to go through testing. We, God wants to prove what is it that's on the inside of us, and he wants to strengthen and purify that's what, that what is on the inside of us. Again, very quickly, not trying to preach every story in the Bible, but look at Job. Job, the enemy come to the Lord and said, if you'll just move your hand and let me add him, I guarantee you he'll falter. And that whole book is an entire story of how the enemy threw everything he had at Job. And what did Job say? Even though you slay me, I am still going to serve you. He had to endure some trouble, but it was a testing, and he went through the testing, and he passed the test, and as a result, he was blessed with more than he had ever had before. Amen? What about Abraham? Abraham spent all of his life being told, or most of his life being told when the covenant with God, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. You can look at the sand on the shore, and it's gonna, your, your descendants are going to outnumber that. Look at all the stars in the sky. Your descendants are going to outnumber that. Yet here he is in his old age, and he still hasn't had his first child. That'd be hard to believe, wouldn't it? And we know what happened. He finally is, gives birth to a child, Isaac, and when Isaac was still yet young, God says, all right, I need you to go sacrifice that son to me. What was he doing? Had Abraham messed up? No. But it was a test, and Abraham passed the test because he was willing to go through it, even though he didn't want to on his inner self. As I'm sure emotionally it was hard. I'm, I'm sure he, he fought and he toiled in his mind. But he was willing to go through and take Isaac up on the mountain. And just in the moment when he was about to bring the knife down upon his only begotten son, his only son, God said, you have passed the test. And he provided him a ram for sacrifice, and Abraham's promise was fulfilled. I don't know about you, but some of you may have come in here this morning a little bit down in the dumps. Maybe you've been going through a season of disappointment because things have not gone your way. And I'm here to tell you, God very well may be just simply testing you, and your miracle is just on the other side if you will hold on. Another reason we go through trouble is just sometimes the enemy is going to attack us. What did Peter say? He said, the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not to scare you and not to, to, to speak evil or to give the devil any glory, but the devil is going to attack us as we go through this life. Sometimes the enemy knows, at least has a premonition that God wants to do something in our lives. So what is he going to do? He's going to set out attacks to try to defeat us. But I'm here to tell you that he... Greater is he that's on the inside of you than he is in the world. Amen? Anytime we're dealing with trouble, God is sitting there ready and willing and waiting for us to call upon his name so he can be dispatched to help us. Amen? All right, so I've already preached a lot. We're still only through a couple of verses. Let's keep going. All ready? Let's go to verse 4. So here's Jehoram. He's founding himself in trouble. We know the background. He's not a man who's following after God, but in verse 4 it says this, Now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So it may be hard for you to fathom, but imagine this. This king in Moab, they had a sort of a tax, basically, where the Israelites told the Moabites for, for, for basically every day, if you did the math, this was like several hundred rams had to be sheared and lambs had to be sheared, and they had to pay all that wool to Israel just as a tax, just because Israel said, we're more powerful than you and this is what we want. But in verse 5, it happened when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. He heard that, hey, the king of Israel's dead. Ahab's gone. I'm tired of shearing all of this sheep. 
I'm through. I'm not giving you anything else. That starts a problem. So verse 6, King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and he numbered all of the people. It says that he murdered all, or uh, he mustered all of Israel is what it says. He got them all together. Then in verse 7, he went and he sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are your horses. Then he said, which way shall we go up? And he said, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So here's Jehoram, king of Israel, he partners up with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and he says, hey, I need to go teach Moab a lesson. You want to go with me? And he says, sure, let's go. Jehoshaphat liked to fight, so there they are. They're on their way. Verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and then the king of Edom. So here we have three kings that have born together, brought their people together, and they're going out to fight. They're marching on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three things, or three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So these three are excited. They're going to fight. We're going to go teach Moab a lesson. Except as they're marching around and preparing, they realize we're in the middle of a desert and we're thirsty. There's no water. So notice what happens in verse 11. Finally, we have some sense. We have some wisdom. Jehoshaphat, he says, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, hey, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water onto the hands of Elijah. And so Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of the Israel and Jehoshaphat sent the king of Edom and the king of Edom. They all went down to him. Let's pause again, all right? I know a lot of verses. Stay with me, okay? So here we are. They're in the desert. They're getting ready to fight. They realize there's no water. And finally, after they've sort of jumped out into something, they maybe should have asked for the word of the Lord at the beginning. That's another sermon I could preach, but I'll pause right there for now. I've went on enough side tangents, I feel like. They, they, They probably should have tested the word of the Lord first, right? But now they find themselves... In the desert, they find themselves thirsty, there's no water, and now Jehoshaphat realizes, okay, let's hear from God, because I don't want to thirst to death in this desert. And so they go to the prophet, they call for Elisha, they realize, okay, he's the one that was with Elijah, he was a servant to Elijah, surely he can hear from the Lord too. Here's the second key I want you to understand, is that God works through his church. God works through his church. This is a sign here. Guess what? His church are his people, his prophets. Sometimes we think it just takes a certain individual with some incredible ministry. No, God wants to minister to a dry place that is this world, and he wants to use you and I, his church, to do that. Jehoshaphat sought the will of God through the prophet. Jesus in turn, established his church. What did Jesus say? He told his disciples, it is through you that I will establish my church. He loved his church so much that he shed his own innocent blood and gave his life so that that church could be established. He intended for his disciples to be his representation on earth. Jesus knew that he in the body couldn't stay on earth. He had to go prepare a place for you and I. He had to go sit at the right hand of the Father to intercede for you and I. Amen? 
Yet he still needed someone here on earth to do his work. He still needed someone here through the power of the Holy Spirit to convey God and be a witness to him here on the earth. That's where you and I come in. The disciples were supposed to be his ambassadors and his administrators. What did Jesus say? He literally told them to occupy until I come. Here's the key. That mission is the same for you and I. It wasn't only a mission for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all those who were in the 12. It wasn't just a mission for them. It's a mission for you and I. We were called not to just come and sit in a building every day and listen, or every week and listen to somebody pontificate and feel good and go back about our normal lives. Amen? We were called to actually be conveyors of Jesus. The works of Jesus should be evident in our lives. We're to be his hands and feet here on the earth. God wants to minister today, and guess what? He wants to use us. So many times we as the church are praying for revival and praying for change, and we need revival, and sometimes there's nothing wrong with praying for revival, but sometimes we think revival is some sort of supernatural element or event where a great big bright light's just going to shine one day and people are going to be zapped. No, guess where revival's going to come? When you and I begin to be revived in our own hearts and in our own souls, and we walk out from here and we be that change in this world. A lot of times our prayer for revival is God send somebody. When God's saying your prayer for revival needs to be God send me. God's ready to minister and he wants to use you. What if Elisha had refused in the call? If Elisha had said, you know what, I, Elijah, I would definitely put down this plow and burn it and leave my father and mother and go with you. But man, I just, I really need to take care of things. I really have a comfortable life here. I really don't think this is for me. It would be nice, but there's probably someone more talented. He would have missed his moment. He would have missed his purpose. And these kings who needed a miracle that was going to take place would have missed their contact person. What if that person you've been praying so long for to, to see Jesus, to recognize Jesus, to come to Christ, what if that person has not come to Christ yet because you have yet to speak the words of life to them? What if there's a change that needs to be made in this world and it's hinging on the fact that you haven't said yes to that what if that the Lord is calling you to? I know this isn't the most shouting and popular type of message, but I need to encourage you that we have to be diligent in seeking God's will for our life and be ready to listen to His voice. Let's move on. Verse 13. So they call to Elijah. They go to Elijah. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Now again, Elisha knew who these people were. Wait a minute, your, your, your mother was Jezebel. She was the one who killed all the prophets of God and who funded all these prophets of Baal. Why are you coming to me? Go to the ones that you worship. He's sort of testing them. He's probably in the flesh a little bit, maybe like we would be, right? Oh, why are you coming for me to help? Go to the politicians you voted for. <laughs> but no, Elisha says, go to your prophets. But the king of Israel says, no, no, no. The Lord has called these three things together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What did I say earlier? God is ready to help whoever is willing to call and acknowledge him. He, acknowledges, he says, no, I'm acknowledging that we need help from your God. 
He's brought us together. This is something we need to do. So Elisha said this, verse 14, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, Surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Now bring me a musician. So he's making a point. Because you brought Jehoshaphat with him, I know Jehoshaphat, and I believe that God is with him. The rest of you I wouldn't even look at, but based on the fact that you joined with him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what the Lord has to say. So he calls for a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he began to speak the word of the Lord. He said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. It shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So they went to the prophet and they said, Prophet, tell us what we shall do, for we need water. Then we also want a victory. So tell us what it is we want to do. And so he told them, (laughs) go dig ditches in this field. Can you think about that? Here's the third point I want you to get today. God isn't always going to use, quite frankly, I would even say he rarely chooses to use common or usual ways to do things. Oftentimes, the things that we pray for God to deliver us from are the very things he wants to use to prepare you for what he has for you to do. What does he tell them to do? Go dig holes all through this field. All through this desert, go dig holes. This was God. You realize all the ways that God could have brought them water that would have been so much more cool maybe in our minds and especially in their minds than to go dig ditches? I mean, this is God. He literally could have sent just a caravan of camels to happen to be coming that way and they may happen to carry water with them. How cool would that have been? This is God. I mean, he has a precedent in the Old Testament of sending people to a rock and having them smite the rock with a staff and water just gushing forth out of that rock, right? Couldn't this have been one of those times? You realize this is God. There are scores and scores of angels in heaven right now, in the spiritual realm right now. They could have just entered down from heaven and brought barrels full of water with them and they could have all had the drink and everything would have been great. God could have done that, right? Right? And, I mean, we can even, you're thinking, man, you're getting a little bit out there. You're, you're getting really into fairy tale land. Okay, I'm just, I don't, I don't think so. Everything I'm saying, there's precedent for. But even if you're, you're not quite on that level, I mean, God literally controls the skies. At the very, very least, he could have opened up the heavens and rain could have fell, right? I mean, he did that 40 days and 40 nights one time. Are, are y'all getting this? Sometimes there's things in your life that you know God wants to do, and you're wondering why they just haven't happened in a zap. It's because God doesn't always choose the ways that we want him to work to work. Because if he did things the way that we wanted them done and usually using the methods we wanted to use, then most of the things we would do ourselves and God wouldn't get any glory. Is anyone listening? I mean, every big dream, I I look around 
all the stories that you hear and all the testimonies and looking around at what I've seen accomplished at all seasons and what we're working on accomplishing at all seasons. Man, I'm just thinking, God, you could have just, you know, made a lot of this happen very quickly and we could have gotten to work. That's not the way God operates, is it? Because it wouldn't build our faith the way he wants it built. All throughout the Bible, God shows that he, he really likes to do some unusual things to test our faith and our obedience. Kind of gives you another example. What about a story of Naaman who went to the prophet? Naaman was leprous, and he just went to the prophet, and he said, you're the prophet. You can just either lay hands on me and zap me, or you can just speak the word, and I'll be, I'll be clean, and everything will be good. No. What did he tell Naaman to do? Go to the Jordan River, and you need to dunk yourself in the dirty, nasty Jordan River seven times. And Naaman was appalled. No, do you not know who I am? I'm not going into that. I'm Naaman. I'm an important man in the military. Come on, you're making this too hard. No, how much do you want to be healed? How much faith do you truly have in the word of the Lord? Are you willing to do things that may seem foolish in the eyes of man because you're obeying me? Is anybody with me today? I don't know who I'm speaking to, and I don't want this to sound harsh, but I feel an unction of the Spirit to speak this into someone's life. Somebody listening to me this morning, you've been even sitting this week wondering why this break hasn't gone your way, why why these things that you know that God wants for you, you're not seeing yet, and you feel like you're up against the wall. God wants to remind you maybe there's something He's asked you to do that you've yet to fully commit to or fully obey. There may be a point in our life where we're willing to submit some things that may look foolish in the eyes of others, but are key to us breaking through the things that are in front of us. Why did Jesus say this? I believe Pastor may have spoken on this in the last few weeks. Why did Jesus tell his disciples when they couldn't cast out the devil? Those people brought the demon possessed to him while he was away, and he come back and they say, well, we, we came to your disciples. We thought they could, you know work they had your power but they couldn't do anything and Jesus said well these types of things only come by prayer and fasting why did he say that because when you fast you're doing something that in the natural doesn't make sense in this case in that case it was food hey if I'm I'm sticking away from food the body it's natural for us to eat we want to eat we get hungry we need food It's unnatural for us to say, you know what, I'm going to deprive myself of this. But guess what? When we're willing to do something that's unnatural in their obedience to God, there comes power behind it to overcome what is in front of us. Is anyone listening today? Is this making sense? I don't know what it is. I'm not saying that God's calling any of you to 40-day food fast or anything like that. But there may be some sort of discipline. There may be something you're holding on to that even today, Holy Spirit will begin to mention to you and bring to your, to your mind. He says, listen, if you want to go to the next level, are you willing to sacrifice this? Are you willing to turn off the TV for a certain amount of time? Are you willing to get off social media for a certain amount of time? Are you willing to push the plate back for a certain amount of time? Or maybe it's crazy. Maybe you need to sow a little bit more into this ministry or that ministry or into this area. Maybe it's crazy because you're so busy, but maybe you need to devote a little bit more time of doing something for someone that isn't going to benefit yourself. Why would God ask us to do that? Because when we're willing to step out in obedience in something that's unnatural, there's a victorious and overcoming power that comes with it. I know that because he tells them, if you want to overcome, go and dig some ditches in that field. 
It was going to be hard work. It wasn't going to make sense. It wasn't going to be fun. But if they wanted to see God's hand move, they had to obey his voice. What about Joshua? Again, we all know the story. Joshua, he, God says, all right, you want to overcome that city? Go walk around the wall seven times. What? I mean, if we're going to overcome, aren't we supposed to go fight? We're supposed to do things. We're supposed to make sure our army and our, our, we're ready to fight. Our warriors are at the tip-top physical shape. No, you just do what I say and go walk around seven times. Then on the seventh day, you can walk around seven times all in that one day. And if you'll do that, I promise you'll see a victory that you couldn't have obtained yourself. We know what happened. He obeyed, and guess what? They were victorious. What are the walls in your life right now the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind and speaking to your heart that you need broken down, that addiction that you keep fighting, that you keeps holding on, that you haven't been able to break yet, that financial wall that keeps staring in front of you and prevents you from doing the things for God that you want to do, that relationship issue that just hasn't overcome. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to listen to the voice of God to overcome those attacks in your life? Even one more thing, and I'll move on. I'm not trying to belabor this point, but even the miracles of Jesus themselves a lot of times didn't make sense. I mean, sure, we have the ones where the guy comes and he just says, speak the word. Jesus says, yeah, go home. Your daughter will be healed when you get there. Those are cool, right? We like that. Very much a social distance miracle right there. It would definitely work in today's era. He just had to speak it, and it was there. But then there were the miracles that would not have worked in today's area, like when Jesus like literally spit in this person's eyes. I mean, let's be real. In the natural, we're like, oof. I used to say this all the time. We'll say it again. If I, if, if I called somebody up here and felt, said, you know, start spitting in your eyes and saying the Lord wants to heal you, some of you would like never return. I would never return. <laughs> I'd be gone. Y'all be like, oh, that dude's crazy. There's another time where it says Jesus like touched somebody's tongue. I mean, I'm, I'm just being real. I'm not trying to be weird. I'm, I'm, it's what Jesus did. Why did Jesus do these things? Well, he wanted to test their faith. Did they really believe he had the power to do what he said that he would do? By doing unusual things, if he did things all normal and usual, where would the faith be? There may be some unusual things God is asking for you to do, and that's what happens here. So they're asked to, to dig the ditches. And he says, if you'll do all these things, then God is going to be with you. So look what happened in verse 20. It says, now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. How awesome is that? They, they just dug some ditches, got up the next morning and boom, water had appeared and flowed through all of them. What a miracle. Here's the fourth thing I want you to know today. God requires faith and obedience before he will act. I'll say it again. God's going to require the, the, the faith and the obedience before he acts. It's the complete opposite of anything our logical minds want. We're all like seeing is believing, right? You show it to me and I'll believe it. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. You believe it and I'll show it to you. You listen to me and hear what I say. Think about what they could have said, what you and I would have said. Dig, dig, this is a waste of time. 
We could be planning our battle strategy. We could be mapping out the land. We could be preparing for this fight that we're going to have. We could be start planning how we're going to divide out the different spoils when we overcome them. But instead, you want us out here digging trenches all through this field. They could have said, it's crazy, it makes no sense. This is the desert. There's no way that this can happen. But despite all of those doubts, what did they do? They obeyed and they dug. They made room. I want you to think about that. They made room. A lot of times we ask God for miracles to work in our lives, but are we really prepared for God to move in those areas? Sometimes the step of faith is preparing for God to do the miracle. Think about all the other stories in the Bible, how these these people were prepared. They made room for the miracle. The prophet that Elisha would encounter in the next chapter. God's going to give you a miracle. Go gather every vessel that you can find. Remember pastor preaching this not too long ago. He said that was one of the saddest parts is they ran out whenever they ran out of vessels. The oil never stopped. It's just they ran out of places to hold it. If you'll make room for God to work in your life, guess what? He will. Verse 21. So what happens next? The water came, the miracle came, and then when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites, then destroyed the cities. And each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left stones of Kirharaseth intact. Therefore the sour of the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for them, he took him 700 men who drew swords to break through the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall and there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Wow. Not only did God provide water supernaturally for them, he used that as a tactic to help them gain victory over their enemy. Here's the next point, point five. God's methods and miracles, they are beneficial to us, amen? but they're going to be confusing to the enemy. God's methods and miracles, they're they're beneficial to us. I'm thankful for God's supernatural provision to me, but the truth of the matter is, is a lot of times when God blesses us, not only is it for our benefit, but it also will be a confusion to the enemy. The enemy saw the water and it looked like blood. They thought they'd all turn on one another. They'd easily go just sort of pick up all all of the bounty and so to speak, but it, it led to their demise. Let me show you how this looks in the New Testament. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 1 real quick. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 through 25, Paul said this, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. It's a stumbling block because they didn't believe he was the Messiah. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When God blesses and he does things in our lives, there's no explanation for it. And that's how God receives glory, amen? If everyone could just see it and believe it, it would be fantastic, but the truth is, is people become confused about it and that's how God receives glory. Look at all the different examples where we see this at work. You read the story of Gideon, and Gideon had just a very, very small number, but he was able to surround his enemy, and they made noise by crushing pots. And the loudness of those crushing pots and blowing horns was so loud that the the army thought they were surrounded by scores and hundreds and thousands, and they all killed one another. What about the cross? As it says right here, we, we preach foolishness is, is what it sounds like to those who haven't understood. For those who the Holy Spirit hasn't prepared, the, the preaching of the cross is almost like foolishness. doesn't make sense. Your Savior, the one that you guys were calling Messiah, we killed him. We put him on the cross. But that cross was our freedom. It was our bridge to eternity with Jesus. Amen? What does the Word say about preaching? Pre- preaching confounds the wise. When I look at all the workings of the Spirit, we look at what the Bible says about when we pray in the Spirit, when we enter in our prayer language, how that is a language that no one on earth can understand. It's foolishness, but it's the Spirit interceding on our behalf to the Lord. And for that reason, out of my innermost being, I'm able to intercede and pray to God things that no one here on earth can understand, not even the enemy. I'm here to tell you the blessings of God, yeah, they're going to be for your benefit, but if you're only seeking God's blessings for your benefit, you're missing the power of them. They're going to confuse the enemy and help you overcome in your life. Leads to the sixth point. God's power is going to bring a separation between righteous and unrighteous. There comes a point at the end where there's a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. Right there in that story, there was a clear separation. On one side, it was water. It was living water that they needed to to live, to, to sustain them. It came from God Almighty. On the other side, it looked like the end. It looked like death. I'm here to tell you, when it comes uh, to this world, there is no cross-pollination allowed between worldliness and spirituality. I know we're in, a, we're in a society today that is more compromised than ever, that is seeking a compromise where the church is wanting to be, has almost become worldly in an attempt to try to look like they're relevant instead of preaching the relevant, changed, life-changing power of God. There, at the end of the day, I'm not saying that we don't love people. I'm not saying that we have to beat people on the head with the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have to become the judgmental group that's always pointing a finger either. Does that make sense? What I'm saying, though, is we have to stand up for truth because at the end of the day, there is no uh, intermingling. There is a division that's coming. There's a separation. The Bible calls it a sanctification. We were called to be set apart from the world. If we look like the world and we live like the world, we might as well just be the world. How many times do we see this even throughout the Bible? Moses at the Red Sea. He said, you better choose because we're going to go across. You're either going to go with us or you're going to stay behind. They went across as the Egyptians were behind them, as they were in the sea, the sea rushed in and drove them away. It was a dividing line. What about Elijah, as we said, just over in 1 Kings with 
the prophets of Baal. There was a clear division. You're either going to be for God or you're going to be for Baal. Well, all the ones for Baal, they cried out for fire. They cried out for a sign all day. They even cut themselves and went crazy. Nothing happened. Elijah stood up and spoke a simple prayer to show that you are worthy and God sent fire and all the prophets of Baal were slain that day. Ultimately, worldliness and spirituality cannot coexist with our souls. There will ultimately come a point in your life where you have to choose, as Joshua said, this day who you're going to serve. If you're going to serve God, you have to go all in and give everything you have. If you're going to serve the world, that's fine. But this, this lukewarm situation we find ourselves in in today's society where we try to just stay on the, stay on the margins. I want a little bit of the world today and a little bit of church on the weekends It's not going to cut it. You're eventually going to be consumed. That leads to the final part I want you to get today. Number seven, following God's way will always lead us to victory. Following God's way will always bring victory. You can keep chasing after these things in the world. You can keep seeking after the things of the world to fulfill you. You can keep seeking after these things to give you your purpose and to provide you happiness. But all in all, at the end of the day, every single one of those things are eventually going to leave you feeling empty. They're going to leave you feeling hopeless, and you're going to find yourself in defeat. But if you will obey God, if you will listen to his voice, and if you'll follow after his commandments today, I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt, you will be victorious. You may not be the most wealthy here on this earth. You may not be the most popular on this earth. I can't promise you that. The enemy will try to promise you that but I can promise you that you'll spend eternity with him in paradise, amen? And I can promise that there's no weapon the enemy will form against you that'll prosper. I can promise you, as we said already, and we'll say it again, Romans 8, 31, if God be for us, then what? Who can be against us? If you want victory over the enemies in your life, follow after what God is saying. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, if God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Whatever it is the Lord speaks into my heart and asks me to do, he's good enough and has enough grace to help me achieve it. Amen? What a promise. Let me take you to one last scripture this morning. Psalm 37. Sort of brings all of this into crystallization. The psalmist says, Do not fret because of evildoers. I know this is very hard today in today's society, isn't it? Just scroll through social media for five minutes, turn on the news for three minutes, just go to Walmart and walk in the door. I, I know how it is. The moment you kind of go in somewhere, you start looking around, you see evil around us, and, and our, our natural inclination is just to seize up and panic. And God, what are you going to do? How are you allowing this to happen? Why is this happening? Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. So many times when we see people, God, I know that they're not living for you, but they seem happy. They have all this stuff. I promise you, looks can be deceiving. The way things look on the outside may not be the way they are on the inside. Y'all listening? Don't be envious of those things. Don't fret for they shall soon be cut down like the grass. The things of this world are temporary, my friends. They may... They may be celebrating for a season, but their season will end. They're going to wither as the green herb. 
So what do we do? Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Two things, trust. Everybody say trust. And then it says do good. Trust, believe God's going to take care of me. He's on my side. And I'm going to do good. I'm going to keep on doing what I can. I may not be able to to single-handedly blot out all the evil in this world, but I am in control of my sphere of influence. I'm in control of the people I come in contact with every day. I'm in control of how I spend and steward my 24 hours I'm given each and every day on this earth. I am in control of that with the help of God. I'm going to obey Him and I'm going to do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. If you can grasp that, you can live a strong Christian life. Don't, you're not, don't delight in the world. It's not going to happen. Don't delight in your stuff. Don't delight in your friends. Don't delight in your family. Not that those things aren't good, but those things are all going to let you down eventually. But when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. So commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and he shall bring it to pass. What a promise. One more verse. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You can count on it. You can set your clock on it that Jesus Christ and the Lord has your back and that justice will come to you. Will you stand with me this morning? I hope you gained something from this little storytelling session this morning. But I want you to spend a few moments, can we here, just close your eyes. Will you allow Holy Spirit to begin to talk to you for just a few moments? Hopefully he's already been speaking to your heart, but we got a little bit of time before Sunday school, so if we can sort of sit tight. I don't want you to get in too big of a hurry. I just want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. You've listened to me. There may be some areas in your life, some people I'm talking to. As I said, I just, I don't know, I'm... Couldn't come and point you out or anything. I wouldn't do that if I could, but I just sense in going through this this morning that there's people under the sound of my voice that you've been dealing with some some troubles and maybe you're not sure why you're going through the troubles. I'm here to encourage you this morning. If you're in a situation where you've walked out of the will of God or you've maybe there's just an area of disobedience or an area you just haven't submitted to Him, not that you're living a full-fledged sinful life, but there's some things God's been nudging on you to do. Maybe you just haven't surrendered it. Maybe that's the key to you overcoming this situation in your life. Maybe there's some things in your life that God's been impressing on you and you've sort of made excuses why it couldn't happen. It doesn't make sense. What do people think? I don't want to be viewed in that manner. And God's sitting here saying that's the key to you getting to your next level. Maybe you're here and there's a you've been weighing a decision, but you you know the Holy Spirit's sort of highlighting. You know what it is you need to do. He's just waiting for you to obey. What I'm asking you to do, the altars are open if you need to come down here and pray, and I'll agree with you. But even right there where you are today, you know what Holy Spirit is asking you to do. You know what that giant is in your life. You know what that enemy is in your life. It's time for you this morning to start digging. 
Let this be the moment where you pick up the shovel this morning. Will you pray with me, Father? Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your word. Father, today we know there are different seasons that we go through as we've talked about. Father, there are different moments that we go through. Father, all of us are going to face trials. It's not a, it's not an if and it's, it's not a sign of weakness that we face trials. Father, we're all going to face trials. But Father, I pray, Lord, first of all, right now that your spirit will help us discern the trials that we may be facing right now. Father, there's some in here, Father, who have allowed disobedience or they've walked out of your will. They've, they failed to yield to your voice. They've listened to the voice of the enemy. They've allowed outside influences to drive them towards somewhere. And Father, they find themselves needing to repent. I pray, Lord, right now, Holy Spirit, that you'll draw them to you. Father, you're ready to help us. So Father, let us call on your name today. Show us our way of escape. Father, even if you're looking to test us, Father, help us to hold on and endure in this season. Help us to trust in you. Father, if it's an attack of the enemy, give us the strength to overcome it. Father, today there may be some that are listening to my sound, under the sound of the voice, God. There's some, Father, who, Lord, you have big dreams and big visions for. Father, you've even revealed some of those into their hearts. But, Father, it just seems like the closer they get to the moment they think they're ready to break through, that it's like the chair or the ladder is pulled out from under them and they find themselves stumbling back down. Father, today, speak to your people. Give us faith. Father, show us what it is you would have us to do to overcome. Help us, Father, to discipline and sacrifice our flesh, God, to lay it down so that we can live by the Spirit, we can listen to you. Father, those who you are specifically calling to a time of consecration to give up some things, Father, speak to them and help them have the endurance to follow through. But Father, ultimately, we thank you today for the promise of victory. Father, we may feel like that we are completely surrounded and there's no way out and there's no way of escape, but Father, you've said in your word that if we will trust in you and if we'll hold on to you, that Father, you're good and you will help us endure. That which you've begun in us, Father, you will complete that work. So help us to endure today. Give us strength this week in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you all this morning. Hope you have a great week. Go get the devil fits.